Okay, so last week I started a little mini-series called Old Testament Optimization. And all I'm trying to do here is give us um, some uh, help in getting more out of reading the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Of course, we call it the Old Testament, but what we call the Old Testament really started in the book of Exodus, kind of officially in Exodus 19 and 20. So what we call the Old Testament would probably be better named the Hebrew Scriptures. And um, what we're looking at here uh, for three chapters, four chapters now, because I got only, uh, yeah, last week's grew into chapter two, because uh, I only got halfway through mat- the materials, is uh, ways to optimize the Old Testament. So chapter one and two are on three mindsets to see Jesus in the Old Testament. And actually, that's misnamed because I gave you another one that wasn't in your notes. And so I'm going to start off where it says some introductory verses by giving you another introductory verse that's not in your notes. So hopefully you have pens and you're writing these down. In uh, John 5, 39, Jesus uh, confronting the Pharisees and the, the leaders of Israel in his day as he as a great deal of his ministry was uh, standing on the shoulders of all the prophets, uh, having a final confrontation with God's people, God's bride, God's vine. There's many metaphors throughout the Old Testament that come through to the New Testament for the fact that God always intended to have a people for his own possession, born of faith, born of one royal head, uh, born uh, with one as one family, a family of God that is a distinct and separate culture mediating the presence of God to the lost earth around us. And so many of the metaphors in the Hebrew scriptures are also used in what we call the New Testament scriptures. And uh, Jesus uh, is not starting something new when he's confronting the leaders of Israel. He's continuing the ministries of Elijah, Elisha, really Moses in some ways, uh, lots of ways, Uh, but on through especially the major and minor prophets. And he's saying the same message as they're saying. And he, so when confronting the Pharisees in John 5, 39, uh, see it in the larger context of all the Old Testament prophets confronting the the leaders of Israel. And the Gospels record God's final covenant lawsuit against his people, where he then, in Matthew, says, the kingdom will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing the fruit of it, and I will build my church, in contradistinction to Moses, called out assembly, and so forth. In the midst of all that controversy, he says, you, speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes, search the scriptures because you think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. But it's the scriptures that bear witness of me, Jesus says. And the whole reason you don't, un- you know the scriptures by memory. That was an important part of being a scribe or a Pharisee in the time of Jesus. What we would call the Old Testament, they had committed to memory and much more besides. And he's telling them that they're searching these scriptures to, because they think that in the scriptures are eternal life, but they're not getting the point at all because the scriptures bear witness of Jesus. And so if they're unwilling to see Jesus, if they're unwilling to receive Jesus, John chapter 1, Jesus says that he came to his own people, 
and his own did not receive him, but as many as did receive him, to them he gave eternal life, who were born not of the will of man, nor of the will of flesh, but born of the will of God. So he's telling them, uh, what you're supposed to find in the scriptures is Jesus. So that's a key to helping us get a mindset when uh, he sa says that he opened their mind to understand the scriptures, the English translations, for some reason, uh, stay grammatically correct and say minds, when in fact the Greek says mind singular, because it's not talking about uh, in individual minds, but it's talking about a cultural mindset that, that is among the people of God that is reducing the scriptures in such a way that their reductionist theologies are causing them to miss the whole point, and the whole point is Jesus. And in fact, a veil was laying over their heart, as Paul says, like Moses covered in a like manner to, to a parable, in a parable, uh, in, a, in a foreshadowing, Moses covered his face so Israel couldn't see the glory of God. And likewise, uh, the face and heart and mind of, of the people of God remains veiled until the veil is removed in Christ. So what Jesus is saying in Luke 24 is the scriptures, uh, the law, the prophets, and uh, the writings, that what we would call the law, the historical books, the wisdom literature, and the prophets, we would have four sections, they had three. Uh, they are all about me. So we began to get into that last week, and um, I'm just going to go through that a little quicker today. Number one, we talked about fulfilled prophecies. Now, one of the things we mentioned is 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, says, As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. So, we belabored the point last week. If you missed it, you need to you need to listen to the podcast. I listened to the podcast last night. I hate listening to myself on podcasts, but um, but this was a pretty good one, even though I don't like you hearing my voice on, you know, whatever. But anyway, so uh, the information was good, and the anointing was good, and it and it basically is saying um, that. Um, I lost my train of thought here. Sorry, hold on. So all the prophets of the Old Testament were, were wrestling with the Spirit of God within them to understand the Christ, and especially this theme of the sufferings that he must go through in order to enter into his glory, an idea that Israel could never receive. Now, we talked about direct quotes um, and uh, we talked about, uh, so that's point A down at the bottom of the first page there. Jesus and the apostles all through the New Testament quote heavily from the Old Testament. In fact, we never share the gospel using the history of Israel as our point. But there's no place in the book of Acts eight times when the gospel is shared, the, the majority of the message is about the history of Israel and how Christ is parallel to the history of Israel and how Christ is the fulfillment of the history of Israel and how God is still calling a people to himself through Christ. 
That is the gospel. And that today we have this radically individualistic gospel, be, partly because we have these four spiritual laws or five spiritual principles or whatever, and we try to take uh, some key points out of the gospel and rip it out of the context that it was always shared in the Bible. And almost all Bible-believing Christianity, like 99% of Bible-believing Christians do that. Uh, there is a book in our recommended foundational list that addresses that called The King Jesus Gospel by... Uh, for uh, Scott McKnight. So he tries to address that not as thoroughly as he should. And, and although he points out over and over how the, the New Testament gospel is always uh, presenting the history of Israel, he doesn't really bring out why. Uh, which So the book could be improved, but it's a step in the right direction. Um, so all through the old, all through the New Testament, couple things I want you to know is sometimes they quote uh, the Masoretic text. Sometimes they quote the Septuagint, the Greek version. And both Jesus and the apostles seem to quote both the Hebrew Masoretic scriptures and the Greek Septuagint translation with equal authority. And sometimes they're giving a word-for-word -word quote. And when they are, most of the time, they're telling you, go back and read the quote, the context that we're lifting this quote out of. So we pointed out like when Jesus did Psalm 22, 1 on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's directing the whole audience to read Psalm 22. And he knows there are people in the audience who know Psalm 22. And he's basically saying Psalm 22 is happening here now, every bit of it from the beginning of the psalm to the end of the psalm. All of the physical and spiritual sufferings of Christ that are described in Psalm 22, the fact that, that it gives a very good description of crucifixion 500 years before crucifixion was, in, was even invented is amazing. And he's, Jesus is directing you to that. Um, the other thing I want you to know is that often the metaphors or parables uh, that that Jesus and the apostles use are lifted right out of the Hebrew scriptures. So, for instance, I was reading one yesterday, and uh, I kind of spent about two hours on this, even though it was not on my scheduled Bible reading. I'm three days ahead for the year so far. But uh, it wasn't in my scheduled Bible reading, but I just couldn't resist because the scheduled Bible reading was Isaiah 5. And it's just Isaiah 5 uh, Jesus takes all of Isaiah 5 and uses it to give us Matthew 21, 22, and 23. So there, you're, you're, if you want to understand Matthew 21, 22, and 23, read Isaiah 5. Because Jesus lifts the parable of how God had a vineyard, and he planted that vineyard, and he dug a wine press, and he built a wall around it, and so forth, and he expected it to produce fruit, and he kept sending his servants to collect the fruit, and they uh, killed one. And then Jesus takes it a step further and says, finally, he says, I'm going to send my son. And they killed him and said, this is the heir. Let's get the vineyard for himself. Isaiah, he's quoting directly from Isaiah 5 uh, when he does that. Then Jesus starts into this, this, this final confrontation, this final covenant lawsuit with the nation of Israel. And he gives, uh, Isaiah gives us seven woes to the people of God, speaking of seven being the number of the completion of the covenants, the, the perfection of the covenant, of the, that is the number of the fullness of the Old Testament. 
And Jesus gives us eight woes, which is the number of the New Testament, the beginning of the new creation and the new heaven and the new earth. So if you uh, count the woes in Isaiah 5, you'll get seven. If you count the woes in Isaiah or in Matthew 23, you'll get eight. And that's not an accident. You know, Matthew wasn't like, oh my gosh, I wonder why Jesus used eight woes. You know, he, he understands the point. The point is that eight is the first day. Eight is one. Eight is the first day of the week. It's the beginning of the new heavens and the new earth. And the new heavens and the new earth have come in Christ. And they are going to be in the new temple of God, the new city of God, the new people of God. Israel is, is going to become the church. And there's a transition period of one generation called the last days in Scripture where that everyone thinks is about the end times and because uh, they don't read both Testaments and understand it as one cohesive unity. But the, the, it's the last days of Israel because it's the first days of the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And Jesus said in both Matthew 23... And then Matthew 24, he says, this generation, all these things will come on this generation. And a generation biblically is 40 years. We know that Jesus died and rose again in either 30 AD or 33 AD. And Israel was finished as a nation once and for all when Titus conquered it between the years, late in the year 67 AD. And he, and he, and he leveled Jerusalem as predicted in Matthew 24 and Mark 14. He leveled it completely, not one stone on another and so forth uh, in 70 AD, one generation. And by that time, the church was birthed. The gospel had been preached in all nations. Figuratively, the tithe is representative of the old in the Bible. And that's why over and over again, Paul and the other apostles in their epistles say, the gospel which has been, past tense, preached in all the world. And so without understanding that, you can't understand your New Testament. You have to read the Old Testament to understand the New Testament. The Old Testament has all the keys that unlock the doors to the New Testament. Okay? So, when Jesus quotes various parables, go find them in what you call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures and read them as a parallel. And see what he's doing to announce that. Now... Flip over, and that takes us to a most important point. You hear all the time that Jesus fulfilled like 300 prophecies, and I think it's more like 3,000, but that misses the point. It's more than 3,000. It's the fact that the history of Israel and the history of Christ are purposely parallel throughout the Bible. Everything that Israel was taken through, so also must Christ go through, and so must also the church of Christ go through. You, as a Christian, have to go through the parallels of what Israel went through, as Jesus went through, and as the church goes through. So when, it, when he says, out of Egypt I called my son, is he talking about Israel? Is he talking about Jesus? Or is he talking about the church? Yes. Out of Egypt he called it, Israel uh, historically, uh, actually went to Egypt, a symbol of the world and the world's great kingdoms and glories and Pharaoh, a symbol of Satan and his power and so forth. And Jesus himself had to flee from Herod to go to Egypt and so forth. And guess what? 
God called you out of Egypt. I hate when I hear, when I hear tell ask people, well, when did you become a Christian or how did you become a Christian? And they say, well, I grew up as a Christian and, and they have very little testimony of how God took them out of Egypt and into the land. But you must know that. Because I don't care how godly of a family you were raised in or ungodly. You were called out of darkness into his marvelous light and how the lights came on in your life, how you began to see the despair of sin and the depth of sin, the greatness of his atonement, the power of his resurrection, how you began to see this and personally uh, see God put it into your spirit and heart, how you began to understand your calling to be part of a people, a people for God's own possession, how you... Uh, had the, uh, the your eyes open from darkness into light is, in a, is, is something you should be able to tell all the time to anyone. So, um, the, you know, all through um, Jesus, you know, the, all through the Old Testament, Israel is, re, is referred to as a suffering servant. And all through the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as that suffering servant that Isaiah and others were talking about. And just as uh, Israel had to be called out of Egypt, so did you. And just as Israel had to be set free by miraculous signs and wonders, you had to have a supernatural intervention. The reason, the reason Satan opposes the power of the Holy Spirit and the baptism in the Spirit and all this stuff so much is because he doesn't want you having a spiritual Holy Spirit resurrection power encountering with Christ. He wants you to have uh, an abstract testimony. Well, I grew up in a Christian home and I kind of understood this at about age eight and so forth. He, he wants you to be transformed by the power of the resurrection. And uh, that's why um, God has given us grace. But this is quite a quite a lot of uh, Christians have come to us with having gone, you know, to church and Bible colleges and all kind of things that God has really begun to open their eyes to the depth of human depravity. Because today, a lot most people sitting in the pews think I'm a basically pretty good person. I never killed anybody, except in my heart. <laughs> That's the point. You have killed lots of people in your heart. They're, you're all murderers that are sitting here. I should probably get some chicken wire up here in case anyone starts throwing things, like in the Blues Brothers movie, because I'm preaching to murderers this morning. You're a murderer. You adulteresses and adulterers. You liars. <laughs> You proud. That's what we all were called out of. What, you know, it kind of blows my mind that people are like, I don't want anyone to know what kind of sinner I was before. Why? What can you expect? Uh, when you're in darkness, you live like you're in darkness. And your sins may go this direction or that direction, and the leaves, you might bear rotten cherries, or you might bear rotten tomatoes, or you might bear rotten oranges, but you're going to bear rotten fruit because either make the root good and the tree good or make it evil. And before you came to know Christ and be awakened to the power of his resurrection, uh, you had nothing good in you. 
we basically think we invited Christ in at a sinner's prayer and because, you know, there was a little bit of dust bunnies in the house and we needed him to maybe clean us up just a little. No, he, he came to knock the building down and rebuild its foundation from the foundations up. He didn't come to remodel. And he didn't come to, to reform. He came to restore, to rebuild. He doesn't make all new things, but he does make all things new. So let's get into the next thing, the law and the case laws. Now, most Bibles will use the phrase ordinances and statutes. Uh, if you want to see that phrase, those words a lot, read Psalm 119, which is an acrostic psalm with meditations, uh, eight verses on each of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, 176 verses. And uh, each of them has meditations on the importance of the scriptures. That is what we call the Old Testament scriptures. Okay. You know, in Acts 2.42, when it says they are devoted to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, the fellowship, and the prayer, the apostles, what they taught eventually over 30 to 40 years became the New Testament. But initially, they were teaching what we call the Hebrew Scriptures or the Old Testament and showing how Christ was the fulfillment of all of it. So when it comes to the law... We have a mindset that when we get back to the kingdom of God series and probably in a year or so when we get to chapter 12, maybe two years, however long it takes to get to chapter 12 of the kingdom of God series, we're going to look at concepts that are destroying people, the church today, that are reducing the scriptures to take the heart and message out of it, one of which is called antinomianism. And antinomian is the, is, means anti-law, and it's the idea that because we're not under the law, we're under grace, that the law is not important. But the law is important for, in lots of ways. Uh, in, in, you know, the reformers, the Puritans, they all understood this. Uh, the law becomes your tutor to lead you to Christ every day. Every day you need to look intently, as James tells us, in the perfect law, the law of liberty, and you need to see your heart in the mirror of God's word and realize, oh my gosh, I've got bad breath, greasy face, bed head, a couple teeth falling out, and I need a shave. I'm, uh, I've, I've got the, the mirror of God's word is showing me the thoughts and intentions of my heart, combining Hebrews 4.12 there. And I need grace. I need Christ. And why Christ is important is Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Romans 10, 4, Christ is the telos in the Greek. The goal, that means the goal, the reason, it, the, the, reason the law was given. Teleology is a, is a branch of theology that says that in the way God formed and created things, you can see its end purpose. And in Christ, the end purpose of the law has been fulfilled. He did every jot and tittle of it. And so when you read, thou shall not kill, understand that thou shall not kill has chapters and chapters of case laws that if you had an ox and you knew the ox was in the habit of goring people to death and you didn't build the right kind of fences or restrain the ox and, and you've been warned and the ox already got out and you already know that the ox is a killer and you let it get out, then you're, the, you're a killer. These are case laws. And there was a time in our country 
when jurors would sit with their Bibles in the jury box and try to determine which of the laws of God applied to this case. Just a few years ago, a juror referred to the Bible in the jury's deliberations in the jury room. Some of the other jurors complained to the judge, and the judge threw the case out and declared a mistrial because they had brought religion to bear on it. Uh, the whole foundation of our jurisprudence system is based on a, on a Christian guy named Blackstone, William Blackstone, and his Blackstone's commentaries. You're probably familiar with those, Chris, right? And, uh, and they're specifically biblical and specifically Old Covenant. They're, they're, they're Christian. Now, what, what, when you're reading the law, here's some things that will help you. Christ is the fulfillment of every deed of the law. Biblical ethics are the only ethics that require the right deeds with the right motivations and attitude in the right situations to be ethical. It's the only non-situational ethics system in the world. And so, um, you know, when they bring the woman caught in adultery, Jesus doesn't do what he does because he doesn't care about adultery or he doesn't care about what a serious offense it is. But he sees the fullness of the law, and he sees, first of all, if they weren't hypocrites, why isn't there a man being brought here? It's pretty hard to commit adultery by yourself, as far as I've understood. I'm not a real expert on those sorts of things, but pretty sure it takes two to tango. And uh, so the, the, the hypocrisy of the, of the people doing this is, man, is manifestly obvious from the, first, from the beginning, and they, they are trying to trip up Jesus in a catch-22 where there's no right answer, they think. So if he says stoner, they can have him arrested because the, 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 uh, the Romans didn't allow the Israelites to uh, um, execute anyone. But if he says, uh, leave or go, uh, then he's abrogated the law. And remember, Matthew 5, his very most important foundational beginning teaching on what it means to be a disciple, he spends from Matthew 5, 14 to 48, uh, about one-third th of the Sermon on the Mount, not, not quite one-third, about 25% of it, on why he came to fulfill and uphold the law. And he came to put it in your heart so you could do it. And he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets uh, until heaven and earth passes away. Not one iota, not one jot or tittle will pass away for the law until all is fulfilled. And then he goes on to say that anyone who teaches the modern doctrine of antinomianism will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. Now that should scare the bejeebers out of all evangelicalism. And then he goes on to say, it's not only that you're not supposed to commit murder, but you're not even supposed to be a murderer in your heart. And if you actually would call someone a fool or an idiot, let's be honest here. Who has not thought of someone in a denigrating way? Like, what an idiot. Or, you know, who's not been mad at their spouse or just or some per person at school or work or whatever and said they're a fool they're an airhead, they're a ditz, uh, whatever. And Jesus is saying, you are killing the image of God in your heart when you do that. And you're a murderer. So 
um, Jesus is giving us case laws. And he starts the case laws, I think it's in um, maybe verse 17, where he says, unless your righteousness surpasses those of the Pharisees, because all they had was a self-motivated, self-empowered, self-righteous, failing attempt to do the law that left them judgmental of others with no grace and uh, self-righteous in themselves and hypocrites. And uh, Jesus is saying, that's not good enough. And that's what most of us have grown up with. Frankly, that's what most Christians and most pastors we've known where they live. And he's saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that, then he goes on to explain it. With the, what we already talked about, if you have murder in your heart, then he says, if you have lust in your heart and so forth, he goes on to explain all of it. Pray for those who despitefully use you. And, and if someone makes you go one mile, go two. You know, our, he's trying to get at the root of self-lordship. And at the end of it all, he, he, he starts by saying, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and scribes, you shall not see the kingdom of God or enter it at all. And he ends in verse 48 by saying, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, I will, uh, whoever is can, uh, can fulfill that can come up and lead the prayer afterwards because you need Jesus desperately every minute, every hour, like John pointed out a song in one of his teachings, I need thee every hour, etc. So the law will help you see Christ. And if you understand that every law of the Ten Commandments is backed up by numerous, numerous case laws. Leviticus 23 talks about the Sabbath day and the other festivals that Israel was to keep holy, and that all is an expansion of case laws on thou shalt keep the holy the Lord's day, something very few people do today. Do you know that most Christians would not have missed the Lord's day in the celebration of it for work, sporting events, uh, hangnail, uh, sun was in my eyes, or any of the other reasons we miss today. The average Christian today makes it about 40 out of 52 Sundays because all sorts of other things are more important than putting the Lord first. But the, 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 the Lord's day is the first day of the new heavens and the new earth. It's the new creation. It's the day Christ rose. It's the day we come to be commissioned by, by Joshua 5, Jesus, the captain of the Lord's host, who's still the captain of the Lord's armies, and he comes to equip and empower us and send us to conquer on the Lord's day. That's why we come and we worship the captain of the Lord's host, and we uh, take his supper, and we hear his word, and we read his scriptures, and we are sent out with a benediction to go forth and serve and conquer by Jason Hale. Uh, I got to move on. I wish I, I wish I could tell you more, but the, the, the law in the, uh, is full of case laws, Old Testament and New. Every commandment of the Old Testament is repeated specifically numerous times in the New Testament. Uh, some of, sometime talk to me about three ways that the law sanctifies, by the way. The prophets. Uh, 
again, Jesus says in Matthew 23, 34 through 36, therefore, behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you'll kill and crucify, and some of them you'll scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. One of the most important things you read as you read the New Testament is as Paul, Barnabas, Peter, uh, various apostles traveled around the Roman Empire. They always went to the synagogues first and gave Israel one last chance to hear the message of John the Baptist, to hear the message of Jesus, to hear the message of all the prophets, and to repent and become covenantly faithful to their husband and quit being a harlot to God. And uh, some believed and some rejected it, but it upset the unfaithful ones so well uh, if you, you haven't really progressed very far in righteousness until you've gotten to the place where your actual righteousness really ticks some people off sometimes. Jesus said, this is the reason the world hates me, because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. You, you know, your righteousness, your walk with God should be, should be downright convicting to people sometimes and downright challenging. So they want to stone you to death like they did Stephen. I'll be so excited when I hear from Jason, oh, so-and-so's not coming this morning. He was preaching the word, and he was stoned to death. <laughs> I'm like, praise God. <laughs> no, uh, just kidding. But uh, really, so Jesus is saying that I am the fulfillment of every prophet. Uh, we actually think like Christianity today is to be so nasty nice that everyone literally likes us. Not so. Jesus is basically saying that I am uh, Abel, uh, Abraham, Elijah, Jeremiah, and I am bringing their message, and this is my final covenant lawsuit to you. So I even have listed there the last eight woes in Matthew 23. Um, read the prophets and analyze them. They prophesy mostly not about the future, but about calling Israel back to faithfulness to the covenant Lord and to the law. However, because as you remember the eight points of covenant in our Kingdom of God series, part of covenant is that there's conditions to every covenant and there's sanctions, that is there's blessings if you obey and, and, and uh, chastisements if you don't. They warn Israel over and over again of the chastisements. And Israel, that's why they hated the real prophets and they loved the false prophets. Just like today, you turn on TV and you have, get audience of 15,000 people when the preacher is saying, and the Lord is about to bless you, and you're about to have a great breakthrough, and you're going to just really have a stupendous things done of God. Now, they're not saying, and you need to be humble and broken and walk in the power of the resurrection. It's just, it's just, uh, it's just false prophecy. It's just the hypocrisy. It's, it's used car salesmen. And it's always going to be really popular, as it always has been. I wish I could give you more. I'm going to be out of time, so i got to keep moving. The wisdom literature, there's a lot more I could say about the prophets. But you, you need to understand Jesus is the prophets. Jesus came to, to fulfill all the prophets have said and to put a final stamp on their message. By the way... Uh, if you study the prophets, not only 
Is there all kinds of things about the law, especially the first half of the law, loving God and so forth, really both halves, mercy, justice, and so forth. And there's a progressive judgment. Here's how God judges a nation. God judges nations today, read Acts 17, based on whether they follow him, whether they obey his law or not. And the progressive judgments start with an increase in natural disasters. They progress to an increase in economic disasters. And they finally involve military conquest, which if you could step back and see history, when I was a kid, one of the things you were drilled in your head was America has never lost a war. But then we tied in Korea and we lost in Vietnam. And, you know, because we are increasingly divided as a nation as to what we should even be in. And I personally don't even believe we should be all over the globe. You know, how? what makes us so godly that we should be going and imposing our will all over the world? But that's another whole issue. Uh, but... You know, the, but really, the point—the point being this—we are—we are more and more losing the any kind of identity in Christ and freedom and liberty and so forth, and any therefore any reason to fight for ourselves. We could, probably should do a lot less meddling in the world situation and, and repent and get our own house in order. We have—we think we're a lot more godly of a nation than we are. But that's another whole subject. Uh, but that comes from reading the whole Bible. The wisdom literature. Uh, Christ is personified as wisdom. So when you read Proverbs 8, for example, and you read about wisdom being with God, that is the Father, at creation, and dancing and playing and laughing with the Father, that is actually Christ. He was involved. Let us make man in our image. By the way, when you're reading Isaiah 5, look for when God says us about himself in Isaiah. It's not only in Genesis 1.26, as often pointed out. So, uh, the Jesus in, in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Jesus is the point of Job. Jesus is the point of all the Psalms. Now, some of the Psalms make that easier to see, like you can't miss Jesus if you're reading Psalm 2 or Psalm 110, etc. But he's, he's the point of the Psalms. He is the Proverbs. You look at Jesus' encounters when they try, the, a, a whole group of smart people, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, the Herodotians, uh, etc., were trying to catch Jesus in something they could uh, hang on him to bring him to trial and to kill him for three and a half years. And they still couldn't do it. They had to have a false trial. Uh, read a, a book called Who Moved the Stone to see how they broke every law of the law of Moses in the pretense of, of judging him by the law of Moses. They broke every law of the law of Moses because they had no case against him. Because he was, he was every proverb you ever could want to live. I love Proverbs. I've, you know, I've confessed this many times. I used to read one chapter of Proverbs every day corresponding to the date of the month uh, for probably the first eight or ten years that I was a Christian. Because 
when it has the couplets where it says the wise man does this and the fool does that, I'm sorry to say, but I, about 90% or so of the, the fool was me. I'm hoping by the grace of God that order has been reversed over 40 years, but I'm sure it's not 100%. Because I need the grace of Christ every minute, every day. And there is some kind of permanent deposits of grace in, in, in building of character and so forth, but uh, that becomes just dead and empty if you're not leaning on Christ actively to fill that. All right, let's... Uh, I, I got three minutes to talk about points two and three. Types of Christ and Christophanies. Boy, maybe I'll do one more sermon on this. Um, Romans 5 is a great example. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered in the world, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to, to Moses, uh, even over those who have not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him, that is Christ, who was to come. Uh, read Galatians, read Romans, Christ, Adam, Christ is called the second Adam. And Adam is a foreshadowing of Christ. And one of the things you know about the types, uh, John brought this out in his series that I recommended you get, go back to and listen to, uh, called uh, Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, every type falls short. So Adam is a type. Abel is a type. I think we've preached over and over again about the three ways that, that Christ's blood speaks better than the blood of Abel. Joseph is one of the great types. Joseph was his father's favorite son. He was rejected by his brothers, the sons of Israel. He was metaphorically killed by them, but Reuben intervened so that, uh, so that actually he was sold into slavery uh, God raised him up, and despite their rejecting him, he became their savior. And, you know, uh, if you can read the story of Joseph and not break down weeping, especially when he reveals himself to his brothers and so forth, you're probably dead. You're at least spiritually dead. And I don't care if you're not very emotional. If you, can't get, if you don't get emotional when you read that, something is wrong. So uh, we've come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the, the general assembly of the church of the firstborn. There are types. We, we mentioned Joshua 5, one of the great Christophanies of the Old Testament uh, We were in this message already. I wish I could develop that more. I'll decide whether I want to do a week on that. But um, Isaac is a type. Uh, Noah is a type. Moses, Joshua, on and on. Um, there are so many types of Christ in the book of Genesis that you could study types of Christ in the book of Genesis for a year or two, and it would be a very enriching experience. Uh, you should at least see some of it. L ask in what ways does this person either t typify Christ or Antichrist? Cain is a type of the world in the, the Antichrist system. He's a foreshadowing there. So is Nimrod. Uh, lastly, biblical imagery, word pictures and symbols. Again, um, there's a really good book. I'll just throw this out if you want to develop this. By a guy named James Jordan called Through New Eyes, Building a Biblical View of the World. And Or you can read chapter two of the book called Paradise Restored, both of which are on our intermediate book list. 
Chapter 2 of Paradise Restored gives the same principles James Jordan does, but in a much more condensed form. Uh, so you might start there if you're not as familiar with this. But there are literally thousands of word pictures and images all through the Bible. I listed a few of them, I believe. You know, the rock, the rock was Christ. Uh, he's the great shepherd. God's people were shepherds. It's not, it wasn't coincidence that the angels appeared to some shepherds who came, were the first to come and worship Jesus. The great shepherd, the chief shepherd, and so forth. Um, Jonah. Uh, you know, Jonah is, in, is a type of Christ in that he's in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. And his message causes the Gentiles to repent. Israel was constantly being chastised by God for not taking the, the manifest presence and the word of God to the nations around them. And Jonah was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Jonah didn't, he, he hated the Ninevites. It was the center of wickedness. It'd be almost like if I said, uh, Davion, I'm going to anoint you to go to San Francisco and uh, preach to all the homosexuals and uh, New Orleans and <laughs> Miami and, uh, you know, whatever cities you can think of that represent wickedness in our country, Las Vegas, yeah, uh, and, you know, Davion, you're going to stand on the street corners and preach to the people at Las Vegas, and they're going to repent, and they're going to come to church next week, and I don't know how many of us would actually want that, to be honest. That's a little scary to think about. Would you really want that? So uh, I wish I had more time to develop the whole idea of types, Lamb of God, the tree of life in the, in the garden, and the tree of life goes all the way. Jesus is the tree of life, and especially in John's writings, all the way through to the book of Revelation that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. The tree of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is in Revelation, and he is Christ, is the tree of life. John 17, 3, youth, uh, this is eternal life, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. So uh, I could do a lot more with types. John does a lot with types. Hopefully you're catching on to types. Types is, uh, there's a reason why the church lost them, especially from 1890s to 1920s with the rise of dispensationalism and a number of other ridiculous philosophies that dominate evangelicalism today. But, but types are really, really important. And you, you'll miss so much of the Bible's message if you don't learn how to look for and read types. Amen.